Hi, welcome to the X-Men Unraveled podcast. I'm your host, Noelle, and this podcast follows the stories of the X-Men in chronological order. I always say this at the end of the episode, but thank you so much for listening. I have just been blown away by the support I've received for this podcast. Um, Truly, it just makes my day every day. I'm not going to lie, there's days where I feel like I've taken on an insane task for no reason. No one asked for this, and I don't have to do it. But when I see that people are actually listening and reaching out on Instagram or email, it just makes me feel like all of this is worth the work. And I do my best to make the podcast the best it can be for all of you. I'm no podcast expert by any stretch of the imagination, so thank you for the kindness in looking past some of my mistakes. I'm always trying to improve, so I'm just really grateful for the support, and I wanted to take a moment to say that. Okay, I'm done with that for now. Um, today, I am going to go over the early life of Charles Xavier. He is a pretty important character, being the founder of the X-Men and all. He was also super important to the X-Men movies, being played first by Sir Patrick Stewart, who was literally born to play Xavier, and then James McAvoy, who I think did an awesome job taking up the mantle. And as excited as I am to see when and how the mutants finally come to the MCU, still didn't happen in Loki, but whatever. Um, And then also there's the questionable quality of more than one of the X-Men movies, Thinking about new actors playing some of the characters really bothers me, and Xavier is one of those characters. I just can't imagine anybody else playing him. Also, Magneto and Wolverine. But we'll see what happens with all of that, hopefully soon. I covered one story of Xavier's life already at the end of the Magneto episodes. He was in Israel at the time, working at a mental hospital, and that's when he met Magneto. They disagreed about how mutants should deal with a world that persecutes them, and then Charles unethically started a relationship with his patient, Gabrielle Heller. But today I'm going to go back and cover his early life, so let's get into the Xavier from the comics. We learn about Charles Xavier's early life in the X-Men number 12 from 1963, an issue aptly titled The Origin of Professor X. The story is told by an older Charles Xavier who is leading the very first X-Men team. When it was published, remember the series was just called The X-Men, but those old issues are now incorporated into the Uncanny X-Men title. So if you go looking for it, look for Uncanny X-Men number 12. Charles Xavier doesn't have a clearly defined early life, and we don't know his exact date of birth. Based on events, I'd say he was probably born in the 1930s, but it's really hard to nail down an exact year. He is the son of Brian and Sharon Xavier, a wealthy couple, and his father worked as a researcher for the U.S. government at the nuclear labs in New Mexico. During World War II, the U.S. started the Manhattan Project, at the Los Alamos Laboratory to create the atomic bomb, and those labs were established in 1942. Near another town called Alamogordo, there was a bomb testing site, and in the comics, there's another lab established in Alamogordo where Dr. Xavier worked. This lab isn't a real place, but in the comics, it exists where nuclear bombs were tested in reality. When Charles is a young kid, I'm going to guess about 10 or so, his father dies in an explosion at Alamogordo while he's working at the lab. 
His co-worker, Dr. Kurt Marco, somehow survives the accident and starts hanging around Charles's mother, Sharon, supposedly to comfort her in her grief as a friend and co-worker of her late husband. But not much later, Marco and Sharon start a relationship, and that seems to have been Marco's goal all along. Charles is upset about it, as most children in that situation probably would be, and he doesn't trust Dr. Marco in general. A few months later, Marco and Sharon get married, and Marco moves with them into their large estate in Westchester County, New York. They have a huge mansion surrounded by lots of land, and of course later, Charles will use it as a school for mutants. But young Charles is still convinced that Marco only married his mother because he wants her money. Marco sets up a lab in the house and starts focusing on his work and ignoring Sharon. It becomes pretty obvious that Charles's suspicions are correct. One day, Sharon visits Marco in his lab and tries to get him to pay attention to her. He gets mad and tells her never to disturb him while he's working. What a great guy. So then Sharon confronts him, and she says that Marco only cares about her wealth and the power it brings. Marco does the totally normal thing and absolutely blows up in her face. He says that her previous husband had everything, money, success, and fame, while he was just a nobody. And in saying that, of course, he tactlessly reveals that he just sees the marriage as a chance to change that. And since it's the 1940s at this point, Sharon's options about divorcing Marco aren't the best. So she's stuck. Marco then announces to Sharon and Charles that he has a son from his own former marriage and he's going to be coming to live with them. It's not super clear if Sharon is aware that he has another child. But either way, the son arrives the next day, and he's at least a few years older than Charles. His name is Kane, and he's pretty much just an asshole. They also weren't really subtle with his name. Kane is a character from the book of Genesis in the Bible who murders his brother. Quite the namesake. Shortly after this, Charles's mother just up and dies. Supposedly, she dies of a broken heart, uh, but that's pretty lame storytelling if you ask me. She seems to be a young, healthy woman. But, you know, she's a mom, and moms are always just plot devices in stories. But I do have to give a little bit of credit that they wrote a story about an evil stepfather instead of an evil stepmother. That's something, I guess. Anyway, with his mother dead, Marco is now in control of Charles's life and money until he's legally an adult. So now he's trapped with Kurt and Kane Marco running his life. One day, Charles overhears a conversation between Marco and Kane, where Kane accuses his father of killing Brian Xavier, Charles's father, in the explosion at the labs. When they realize that Charles overheard the whole thing, Kane flips out and starts throwing test tubes around the lab. The chemicals in the test tubes mix and cause a giant explosion, throwing all three of them on the ground in a cloud of fumes. Marco does what I assume is the first good deed of his life, and while he's fatally wounded, he still manages to pick up both boys and carry them from the lab to safety. With his final words, he tells Charles that his father's death really was an accident and to be careful when Cain learns about Charles's powers. It's something of a mystery in this story from 1963, how Marco would even be aware that Charles has powers, but in the series X-Men Forever from 2001, it's revealed that nuclear research was just a cover for the real project that doctors Xavier and Marco were working on. They were actually part of a program that studied mutant children. They conducted experiments on them, including Dr. Xavier's own son, Charles. 
Unfortunately, this series was unavailable on Marvel Unlimited, um, and I wasn't able to track down the comics to read, but I was able to go back to uncannyxmen.net and the wonderful synopses that they have there. I'm not going to cover the whole story from that series because it involves a lot of complicated time travel by several different mutants, but they're going through time learning about various events related to mutant history. One of the things that they learn about is the project that Xavier and Marco worked for. The program seems to have been founded and run by a woman named Dr. Amanda Mueller. You may remember her from the Mr. Sinister episode from a while back. Um, I'll jog your memory because it was a while ago, and I actually had to do a refresher myself. Um, but Mueller had been on trial way back in 1891 for the mysterious details surrounding several miscarriages. Would just like to take a second and say how fucked up it is to prosecute women about miscarriages, but Mueller actually deserved the inquiry and the trial. She had made a deal to give Mr. Sinister the miscarried fetuses for his genetic research on mutants. There were newspaper articles about her case at the time that called her the Black Womb Killer. Mueller is obviously a mutant herself, and she lives an exceptionally long life, eventually becoming the founder of the project at Alamogordo on mutant children. And she apparently isn't too torn up about her past with Mr. Sinister or her trial, because in a huge fuck you to morality, the media, the world in general, she names the project after her infamous newspaper moniker, calling it Project Black Womb. And to literally no one's surprise, her old pal Mr. Sinister is also working at the lab under the pseudonym Nathan Milbury. They collected mutant children, kept them in test tubes, and just experimented on them however they wanted in order to learn what they could about the X-gene and mutant abilities. I assume that the trauma of all of this probably led to early manifestations of mutant powers, because these children were collected prior to puberty, which is the general onset time for mutant powers to develop, unless there's some traumatic event. And since Dr. Marco was aware of Charles's powers while he was still a young boy, they would have had to emerge during the experiments. So, Dr. Brian Xavier dies in an explosion at Alamogordo. I'm not sure how, because he probably just wasn't wandering around some atomic bomb testing sites. But best case scenario would be that he got some morals about the whole project and experimenting on his own child and was taken out by Mueller and Sinister. Or it could have just been an accident. Maybe they were exposing the children to more radiation to try and increase their powers. The details of his death are vague, so we don't know and Dr. Xavier is left morally gray at best. After Dr. Marco's death and comment to Charles about his powers, Charles starts doing his own work to figure out what they are. He's not aware of his mutant abilities at this point. He tries to figure it out on his own and realizes that he's a telepath and able to read the thoughts of others. He could have been using these powers without realizing it before this, and that could be why, you know, he seemed to know what Dr. Marco's intentions were in marrying Sharon, or maybe he was just reading context clues. Either way, he believes that his abilities are the result of radiation from the nuclear labs in New Mexico, but we know that it is from his activated X-gene, which is the one that gives all mutants their powers. Charles starts actively using his powers, and he uses them to get answers in school, read the minds of opposing players in football, and just in general to excel in any activity. 
He wins all kinds of sports trophies and academic awards, and his stepbrother Kane becomes increasingly jealous at his successes. I also don't know who exactly is taking care of the two boys at this point, they just seem to be on their own. Charles's powers also cause him to lose his hair at a very young age, so he's basically bald by high school. One day, the tension between Charles and Kane finally erupts into open violence. Kane, in a fit of angry jealousy, knocks all of Charles's trophies off his shelf, and Charles retaliates by punching him. Kane tries to attack Charles, but Charles can read his thoughts, so he knows what Kane is going to do, how he's going to come after him, and so Charles is able to take on the much stronger Kane. After the fight, they seem to go back to some sort of truce, still hating each other, but not in open conflict. Later on, Charles is getting ready to go to college, and Kane offers to drive him, at least to the airport, because he went to Oxford and they're in New York. On the way there, Kane decides to torment Charles, and he starts driving crazy. He's going too fast, taking turns too quickly, and Charles rightly starts to freak out and screams at Kane to stop. But Kane keeps going until he misses a sign that a road is closed and the car flies off a cliff. Kane is somehow able to jump from the car before the crash, but Charles is stuck. Luckily, he's able to use his powers to create a force field and protect himself. He's still injured, but he survives going over a cliff in a car. And this is not how Charles loses the use of his legs. But this event is what finally ends the relationship between Kane and Charles, as Charles heads off to Oxford and leaves Kane behind. Uncanny X-Men number 117 gives a glimpse into Charles's college life. He goes through his undergrad studies at Oxford and eventually starts a PhD program in genetics and biophysics. While working on his PhD, he meets a woman named Moira Kinross. Moira is a Scottish student attending Oxford and is also studying genetics. Recent events in the X-Men comics have added some complicated elements to Moira's story, and I'm only going to briefly touch on them. Originally, Moira was written to be human, but in 2011, stories written by John Hickman retconned her origin. It was revealed that she is a mutant, and she has the ability to reincarnate into a new timeline upon her death. In her different lives, she usually always crosses paths with Charles Xavier, but in the original story from Uncanny X-Men, this is not known to Charles. When she's reincarnated, she does so with the full knowledge of her past lives, and her timeline in this particular story takes place in her 10th life. So Charles and Moira are working on their PhDs when they meet, and Uncanny X-Men number 389 gives some more details into their relationship. At the time that they met, Moira was dating a man named James McTaggart. He was a good-looking guy in the Royal Marines, but Charles still goes after Moira. She invites Charles on a motorcycle trip with herself and James to the English countryside, which is weird enough, but she's also riding with Charles instead of James. I don't know. It's a very strange situation. Anyway, they stop at a little pub, and James, to get Moira away from Charles, causes a scene by basically making out with Moira in the middle of the pub, and they get kicked out. Charles stays behind, but while he's in the bar, he gets a telepathic message, I guess, and realizes that Moira is in danger. He rushes out, takes the other motorcycle to look for her. 
James apparently was driving too fast, it was raining, and the motorcycle slid off the road into a rock wall. Moira's okay and pretty unhurt for someone who just went through a motorcycle accident, but James ends up in the hospital. Moira then decides that she's in love with Charles and breaks up with James while he's still in the hospital bed and officially starts the relationship with Charles. Even if Charles is the right person for her, that's so mean. He's in the hospital. But Moira wants to be with Charles now, so she breaks it off with bedridden James McTaggart. So Charles gets the girl, and not much later, he proposes to Moira. She accepts, and the two of them are engaged. But then Charles does something really dumb. He enlists with the U.S. military and gets sent to Korea. I am not saying, before anyone gets mad, that enlisting and serving the country is dumb. But his reasons are pretty fucking stupid. Apparently, he was bitter at James McTaggart for calling him an effete intellectual, so Charles enlisted to prove him wrong. You'd think he could have just taken up some sort of quote-unquote manly hobby or gotten a manual labor job. Going to war just seems like a very extreme response to a little bit of bullying from your fiancé's ex-boyfriend. Originally, in the comic from 1963, it was stated that Charles was drafted, Personally, I think that makes way more sense as a reason uh, to go to war than him choosing to go because McTaggart hurt his feelings. I'm not sure why they would retcon that particular bit of information. Seems very odd. I do also have to mention that this chapter of his story also complicates Charles' timeline a bit. He was a kid when he was experimented on in the labs in New Mexico, probably pretty young, like a very, very small child. And the lab started operating in about 1942. And the Korean War lasts from 1950 to 1953. So less than 10 years after the labs started operating. And by then, Charles is an adult working on his PhD. Or having already finished it. Granted, he could have started college early since he did so well in school. Cheating with his telepathic powers and all. But it's still a pretty rushed timeline. I'd say the best explanation is that in the comics, the labs are established earlier, at least for the genetic research, so Charles was there before 1942. Anyway, timeline questions aside, Charles is now in Korea serving in the military. He uses his telepathy to work in a search and rescue unit. Since he's able to find people using his telepathic powers, he manages to make a name for himself. According to him, the other soldiers called him the Good Shepherd. There's your not-super-subtle clue that Charles has at least a bit of a messiah complex. While he's in Korea, he gets a letter from Moira. She breaks off their engagement, but doesn't say why. She just writes, Do not ask me why and do not seek me out. Just respect my decision and get on with your life. Pretty shitty. But honestly, and I don't say this because I don't like Moira, but she did break up with her last boyfriend while he was in a hospital bed. It shouldn't take a telepath to figure out she might do something similar to the next guy. And to make it worse, Charles only had a month left in his tour at this point, so he was expecting to go back home, marry Moira, and start their life together. Charles eventually learns that Moira got back together with James, and the two of them got married. They don't have a great relationship. He was abusive, physically and sexually, and she eventually runs away from him. 
At that time, she's pregnant, but Moira keeps it a secret from James and raises their son on her own. In the meantime, Moira continues her work in genetics, studying mutants, and establishes the Mutant Research Center on an island off the coast of Scotland. Her work ends up earning her a Nobel Prize. Eventually, Charles and Moira will reconnect, but not till later in their lives. While still in Korea, Charles ends up serving alongside his estranged stepbrother, Kane. One day, they're under attack, and Kane deserts and flees from the battle. He makes his way into a cave that contains an ancient temple. This part gets very Indiana Jonesy. Um, it's from the X-Men number 12 again, so pre-Indiana Jones, but whatever. Charles sees Kane run away and goes after him. He follows Kane into the cave and he sees Kane reach for a ruby on this ornate pedestal. There's an inscription that reads, Whosoever touches this gem shall possess the power of the crimson bands of Sidorak. Henceforth, you who read these words shall become forevermore a human juggernaut. Charles tries to stop him, but Kane grabs the ruby and is transformed, growing larger and extremely powerful. At the same time, though, bombs are dropped near the temple cave and it collapses on top of Kane. Charles is able to get out and leaves Kane behind. Probably not much he could have done anyway. But when Kane later does manage to escape because he survives the cave-in, because of the power granted him from the ruby, he emerges as the villain Juggernaut. Sidorak was some sort of mystical entity and it basically took over Kane, like possessing him. I always assumed that Juggernaut was a mutant, but he is actually human and only gets his powers from the Crimson Gem. He gains superhuman strength, and using his powers, he moves with an unstoppable force, so he can run through pretty much anything. It's very hard to stop him. He does eventually escape the cave-in and goes on a mission to take revenge on Charles for leaving him behind. As a result, he'll also become a dangerous foe of the X-Men, but those stories come much later. After Charles discharges from the military service after his tour in Korea, he was unsure of what to do with his life after Moira dumped him. In Uncanny X-Men number 117, he says he became a nomad and traveled around the Mediterranean, eventually making his way to the fictional island of Kyrenos. He stayed there, recovering from the breakup and probably the war, uh, before making his way to Cairo. While wandering through the city, his wallet is stolen by a pickpocket, and he telepathically hears the thief laugh. Charles chases after the thief, who turns out to be a young girl. She runs away, knowing the streets better than he does, so she almost manages to escape, but he keeps going after her, and he's able to use his telepathy to not lose her. He finally catches up in an alley, and then uses his powers to basically freeze the girl in place. She's very young, with long white hair, and it's Baby Storm! He tries to look into her mind to figure out more about her, what her powers are, but he's struck with what he calls a psychic bolt. He's knocked to the ground with extreme pain in his head, and Baby Storm escapes. But he knows it wasn't her that psychically attacked him, it was someone who was trying to protect her. And unfortunately, this is all we see of Storm for a while. But she's a cute little baby Storm, so it's something. 
Charles is able to recover and uses his telepathy to figure out where the attack came from and goes into a bar where it originated. But when he gets inside, he can't locate the person who did it. So he sits down to have a drink and wait for them to come to him. Not much later, a huge dude wearing a white suit and a purple fez walks in. The man sits at another table and the two start communicating telepathically. The man says that he's Amal Farouk and he runs the thieves' quarter of Cairo. He says that he knows he and Charles are alike and offers Charles a chance to work for him and gain power and pleasure. Charles turns him down and says that he won't use his powers against people and that he'll bring justice to Farouk. Just want to pause here to say that we actually came across Farouk a few episodes ago when Logan found himself fighting Nazis in Scotland with the time-traveling Kitty Pride, and Farouk was working with the Nazis at the time, so we know he's not a great dude. But he's a powerful telepath and not an easy foe for Charles to face. Charles and Farouk both use their telepathic powers to project astral forms of themselves to face off against each other. Farouk then transports their astral forms to some weird sci-fi-esque dimension of shapes and colors and uses his powers to conjure weapons to attack Charles. Charles is able to conjure his own armor, but he's never been in a fight like this or faced another telepath, and Farouk has a much better mastery of his powers and abilities. He's able to shapeshift and attack Charles from any side or angle, and Charles is struggling to learn how to fight in this non-physical realm. Finally, Charles is able to get over his limitations and create a burst of energy to attack Farouk, dispelling his astral form. Charles then returns to his body to see Farouk fall, unconscious, apparently killed by the attack in the astral realm. Remembering the event later, Charles says that Farouk was the first evil mutant he ever met. I'm not as convinced the people or mutants are ever good or evil, but Farouk might actually fit into those black and white categories. Charles said that the encounter led him to want to protect humanity from villains like Farouk who would use their mutant powers for evil. Unfortunately, while Charles believed him to be dead, Farouk would return in later years against the X-Men, at that time known as the Shadow King. I have one more important story of Charles Xavier's early life before the X-Men, so let's get to that. The last story today comes from X-Men number 20, and it takes place after Cairo and after the story I covered of Xavier and Magneto's meeting in Israel. So Charles goes to Tibet, apparently to find some lost city in the Himalayas. How he heard of it or why he needs to go there are not given, but he finds the city and just casually drives up to the gates. He gets out of his car to ask the guards posted at the gate to let him in, but they refuse, and he can tell that they're under the psychic control of someone else. He does eventually get inside the gate, and a random citizen starts talking to him. Apparently, not everyone is under the complete control of whoever uh, was controlling the guards. Charles is talking to this man, and he says he wants to see the ruler of the city, but the man says that no one is allowed to see their overlord. Charles does some exploring, and he's able to telepathically inspect the city and the walls, and realizes that there are constructions made of metals that don't originate from Earth. And he detects these devices that are basically like Wi-Fi extenders for psychological control, and they are what is allowing this mysterious ruler to keep the city's population in check. 
Charles is then able to find some citizens who want to escape the control of the ruler, and he works to set up a rebellion with them. One guy says that they've been awaiting a leader to save them. This story was obviously written uh, several decades ago, because uh, it's 100% the white savior trope, but moving on. The ruler is able to turn one of Charles's allies into a double agent. So while the rebels are holding a meeting, the double agent tries to kill Charles by dropping a chandelier on him. He's able to dodge it, but now that the ruler knows about the plot, the rebels have to act immediately to have any chance of winning. They all rush into a tunnel that leads to the ruler's residence, but the tunnel is full of all kinds of booby traps, but Savior Charles is able to disarm all of them. He and the rebels make it to the palace, and Charles finds the ruler and confronts him, and the dude says that his name is Lucifer. Not the devil one, I guess that's just, he just took the name. But he doesn't actually give Charles time to say much or do anything, because he presses a switch that drops a huge rock onto Charles. And Charles is pinned with his legs beneath the rock, and Lucifer vanishes through a wall. Charles obviously survives, but it leaves him unable to use his legs. Lucifer returns as a villain facing the X-Men, and he's part of an alien race seeking to take over Earth. Apparently, taking over the city in Tibet was the first step in conquering Earth, but Charles's savior complex stopped him, at least temporarily. He doesn't seem super great at taking over the world anyway. I don't know if anybody watched Invader Zim, but he seems about as competent as Zim. But that is where we will leave Charles Xavier for now. His experiences have set him up to become the Professor X that we all know. His worldview seems to be more shaped by his experiences with other mutants than it is from his experience with humans. Like Magneto has seen how terrible humans can be and wants to help mutants survive and take power. But Charles' run-in with Farouk made him more concerned about what mutants could do to humans. I always hate to say it, but personally I'm with Magneto. We'll definitely see Charles again as we get closer to the formation of the X-Men and also get to a real introduction to Storm as well, which I cannot wait for. Moira and Juggernaut will also be important figures, especially when we get into the comics um, from the 60s, um, into more of the real stories instead of the flashbacks and pieces of history from them. Um, so our X-Men universe is definitely starting to fill up with characters. But that is all for my introduction of Charles Xavier today. Hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next time with an episode about someone I didn't even know was a mutant before I started this podcast, so that should be a fun one. If you want to keep up with news about the podcast, check out the Instagram at X-Men Unraveled, and if you feel like leaving me a review, I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you as always for listening, and don't steal any cursed rubies. <laughs> <laughs>